Hello everybody and welcome back to Grace Nerd, whether you're watching on YouTube or whether you are listening to the Grace Nerd podcast on your favorite platform. In this episode, we're going to continue my Simply Sovereign series. This time we're going to be talking about the topic of the atonement. So I hope you'll join me. Let's get started. So what have we covered so far? We started off by establishing what I believe to be the biblical doctrine of God's comprehensive sovereignty. We then talked about the fall of humanity in that context. We then talked about how God goes about saving us from that condition, and we talked about the doctrine of election. This time we're going to talk about what is traditionally called the doctrine of limited or definite atonement. Any solid Christian you talk to is willing to glory in the most foundational truths of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus took on himself the wrath of God so that all who put their faith in him will be saved. However, as glorious as this truth is, it also raises a series of questions that many do not think of, especially given the truths we've covered so far in this particular series. Perhaps you who are listening or watching have thought of some of these questions if you have been really paying close attention so far. I definitely do recommend that you go check out the series so far, particularly because this episode and the last are definitely meant to be viewed or listened to together. Often when Christians hear the clear texts of scripture that express the choosing or electing or predestining nature of God, they immediately object with verses that seem to communicate a universal desire for salvation on God's part. This is good and right since we must always judge scripture with scripture. Just to name a few of these examples, quote, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, end quote, 2 Peter 3.9. Or, quote, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. End quote. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. Or, quote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. End quote. John 3.16. While I will touch on these texts and a few others, I first want to warn us against a common tendency. Far too often we find ourselves jumping to a text that seems to communicate what we like when we are confronted with a text that seems to say something that we are uncomfortable with. This can easily result not in finding the harmony of scripture, but in trumping one text with another without letting either speak within its context. Our goal is not to find out which text is true and which is false, but to see how the authors intended them to be received. We must do this so that all of Scripture can stand together and be instructive to us. In order to understand the apostles when they speak of Christ's death being for all people, we must understand the concerns that they were addressing in the writing of both the Gospels and the letters to their various churches. One of the controversies that arose was the nature of the way the Gospel should be presented when there was an apparent division between Jews and Gentiles. It eventually came about that Peter's ministry would generally emphasize evangelism to Jews, whereas Paul eventually became an evangelist to the Gentiles. Jesus was the first to talk about this when he gave the Great Commission and told his disciples 
to preach the gospel in every nation. When describing the accomplishment of this mission, the apostles eventually began using language to describe it that, if we look closely, seems inconsistent. For example, at the start of his letter to the Romans, Paul encourages the church by saying, quote, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, end quote. Romans 1.8. Then only a few verses later, he speaks of his plans to continue preaching the gospel, saying, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, end quote. Romans 1.14. Curious. Why would Paul say that the faith of the early church is proclaimed in all the world, then turn around and say that he is yet under obligation to preach as if the gospel message has only begun to spread? Why would he say this if we know both from scripture and history that the gospel had not in fact reached every nation yet? A similar issue arises when we compare different sections of John's writings. John speaks of Christ's death in his first letter by saying, quote, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, end quote, 1 John 2.2. Yet, in the middle of the crucifixion narrative of his gospel, he writes both similarly as well as in much more limited terms. What am I talking about? A point comes in the gospel of John when Caiaphas speaks of the need for Jesus to die. Yet, by God's influence, he accidentally prophesies about the purpose of Christ's death. John describes these words saying, quote, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, end quote. John eleven fifty one and 52. Again, this is strange. In John's first letter, he says that Christ's propitiating death is not limited to his readers, but is for the world. Yet in his gospel account, he says that Christ's death is not limited to Israel, but is for God's children scattered around the world. Focusing in on these passages from John specifically, perhaps we have an insight in front of us as to how this universal language functioned in the minds of the biblical writers. This becomes even clearer as we consider what the word propitiation means. Propitiation refers to a sacrifice that satisfies God's just wrath towards sin. This raises a question. Are we to believe that God's wrath is satisfied for every single individual in the world in light of the fact that Scripture still speaks of a present and future wrath, a wrath that exists even after the cross? On the other hand, John does not seem to be merely saying that Christ is a potential propitiation, but that it is an accomplished reality. Propitiation cannot simultaneously be defined as a fully accomplished reality, as well as a reality applied to every person, if we take into consideration only a few short statements from Paul. In Romans, he writes, quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. End quote. Romans 1.18 Notice the presentness of this reality. And in Ephesians, he writes of the sins of the world and says, quote, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. End quote. Ephesians 5.6 How could Paul speak about wrath that is yet to be satisfied after John seems to say propitiation is an accomplished reality? This tension begins to make sense if we acknowledge the patterns of speech that were common among the apostles. When they spoke of the death of Christ being for all, they generally were speaking about the fact that Christ said the gospel was the message that would extend far beyond the people of Israel. 
As John wrote of Jesus in Revelation, quote, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, end quote. Revelation 5.9. Therefore, terms like all and world are likely speaking of the fact that God's people would consist of all people without racial distinction, but not all without individual exception. This brings true consistency between those texts that speak of God's electing and predestining nature while maintaining the worldwide effects of the cross of Christ. Don't misunderstand, this does not mean that Christ's death was limited in its value, but it is clear in many texts that Christ's death was specific in its intention and unstoppable in accomplishing its purpose in building the church. When we acknowledge this, we begin to see the new power in those texts that speak about Christ's intention in infallibly saving his bride. This is why many theologians summarize this doctrine by saying Christ's death was sufficient for all, but efficacious for the elect. For example, quote, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, end quote, Ephesians 5.25. Or, quote, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, end quote, Mark 14.24. In these passages, we see a much more specific choice of words that communicate the more personal and specific nature of the atonement. To make Christ's death simplistic in its universality may seem to add to the glory of the gospel, but... It removes the personal nature of Christ's choosing for himself a bride that he came to earth to ransom for himself. To deny this would be like asking a man to say he loves his wife, but in a way no different than he loves other women on the earth. This is not the nature of covenant relationship. This is not consistent with those clear biblical teachings that God is a God who elects and predestines. When we begin to see the clarity of this truth, we can see what Peter means when he says, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. This is a promise to the bride of Christ. God is patient toward you, the church, not wishing that any of you should perish, but for all of you to reach repentance. It then makes sense that Peter began another of his letters by saying, quote, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, end quote. 1 Peter 1.1. When we come to understand this truth, we can then make sense of Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2. We can read his words to offer prayers for all people of all levels of authority and know that when he says God desires all people to be saved, that God's bride is indeed chosen from among all people. This gospel is not limited to one class or one race. We then see that this must be his meaning when we continue in the passage and see that the all God desires to be saved is the same all that Christ ransomed. Christ ransomed a people that is both specific and yet universal. Because of this, we don't need to be confused when, in the following letter, Paul couples this teaching with the assertion, quote, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, end quote. 2 Timothy 2.10 When we understand this truth, we can read John 3 and see that Christ's death will cover anyone who has faith in Christ. Yet we can acknowledge that it is the Spirit that brings about that faith, and the Spirit blows where he wishes. John 3, 8. This truth about God's specific and definite atonement may be difficult for many readers given that it does indeed seem to be a more limited atonement, but I believe it profoundly impacts the way we present the gospel. We have not been granted access to those whose names are in the book of life, Revelation twenty twelve. Therefore, we can preach the gospel to all, 
We can preach the gospel that says Christ will be a perfect savior to anyone who repents and places faith in him. Yet, we can remain humble and know that it is the spirit of God in our preaching that brings about salvation. This is a salvation planned before the foundation of the world and will, without fail, be applied to the bride of Christ. If your faith is in Christ, you can know that Christ died for you. He did not substitute himself for a nameless and faceless group that may or may not find salvation. He purchased a bride for himself that he will unfailingly bring to glory. So there you have it, folks. Thank you for watching or listening, depending what format you're joining me in, whether it be the podcast or whether it be on my YouTube channel. If you're on YouTube, make sure that you comment below. Again, this obviously is a controversial topic, so keep it civil, but I'd be happy to answer whatever questions you have if I can. And make sure whatever platform you're on that you like and subscribe. If you're interested in gaming and you're a Christian, make sure that you check out my Crossplay Gaming channel. The link to that is in the description here on YouTube. And if you're listening, make sure you head on over to YouTube and type in youtube.com slash crossplaygamingtv. And we will be back again next time. Thank you so much for joining me.